All right, welcome everyone. Thank you for coming to the very first podcast under our new name. So I looked back in the last year, we've done 36 episodes of this podcast and we're now partnering with MTS and wanted to sort of do a bigger conversation in this live format to be able to celebrate the new, new direction of the podcast. So we're now called Leaning In and Speaking Out. So I want to first of all thank you all for being here and being part of this important conversation. Before we get too far, I want to take a moment to have all of you have the chance to introduce yourself. So I wondered, Bev, would you be willing to start us off? Could you introduce sure. yourself? Thanks. Sure. Danse Bev Fontaine Hello, my name is Bev Fontaine. I'm the director of education for Opaspiak Cree Nation. Um, along with myself, I have invited a number of our staff to participate in this, in this podcast. And um, so I'll give them the opportunity to introduce themselves. Karen Karen I've been working with Joey Ross, at Joey Ross School for 40 years. Um, I'm the principal of Joey Ross School. Marcella Clark Vice Principal Oscar Laughing Collegiate. My name is Linda Constant. I teach kindergarten pre immersion and that. I'm resident from Grand Rapids and I've been with OES and OES for 10 years now. <laughs> Barbie Manin and Snigasun. I teach grade three cream version. Um eleven years. Um Egose. Danse Sylvia Latlin Scott Lipisinigasun. Uh Utani Nochis Koneganik. Vice Principal Bitagisun, Joy Ross School. Hi, my name is Sylvia Latlin Scott. I'm from Opaska Cree Nation. And I am the vice principal for Joy Ross School. That was it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I also want to offer Davin the opportunity to give an introduction here. Anin Bojo, Davin Dumas, Midij Nikas, Kawi Kwen Rongak Nidonji. I'm Davin Dumas from Sandy Bay Ojibwe Nation and Treaty One Territory. And I'm currently employed as the Director of Languages and Cultures at the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Center. All right, should we dive right in now, Jackie? Let's dive right in. All right, so the very first question on our list for the conversation is to just take a few moments to talk about what the steps are that your community took in order to revitalize Indigenous language learning. If you could tell us about those initiatives, that would be great. Uh, this is Bev here, and I can lead the discussion or conversation on this. Um, our journey with, uh, I'll focus in on the Cree immersion, um, because that's when we started um, spending more time and energy on, you know, actual revitalization. Our journey starts back in about 2003, when our elders um, approached us to with their concern that we were losing the language at a quicker rate than um, 
than was to be expected. And so what we did as an education system is that um, we took this on and we, um, we started having consultations with the community, with the students, with leadership. And um, what was a result of that is that um, we were approved for a pilot to begin a pre-immersion program at the kindergarten level in 2006. Uh, we approached Onion Lake, Saskatchewan Nation um, to help us with this task. And um, I need to put it out there, um, give credit where credit is due that, um, you know, they were, they were a great help and resource to us, providing us with materials, resources. And um, so, you know, I, I need to put that acknowledgement out there. And it was, um, we didn't expect the success that we did have with that first year. We thought we'd maybe have one class of a kindergarten in the Cree immersion and we end up, the demand was so high. We had three classes of um, Cree immersion that we had to um, get going that year. And um, so what happened after that first year is every year after we added a grade and we ended up doing that up to grade six. And then we had to stop at grade six because we had a shortage of Cree fluent teachers. Um, so that continued over the years. And um, in 2010, um, the board established a Cree language committee as a standing committee of the board. And that was established in order to ensure that the focus stayed on our pre-immersion program and that we continue to build on that program and keep it at the forefront. And so that was um, an important thing that was done at the governance level. And what you need to um, realize over this period of time too is um, we were, we, we had to do a lot of proposal writing and um, our teachers, need to receive the credit for, for creating materials and resources on their own time, on weekends. Um, that's how we were able to do a lot of our, our, our curriculum material work and, and get it out to our um, students. Um, so over the years with proposal writing, we, we, um, we did different things. We, we brought a Cree um, curriculum developer on at, for one year. Um, we did initiatives with elders to try and get um, to have our elders involved in the program. And um, um, we had Cree language classes. So we did a lot of different initiatives over the years. In 2014, we had 40% of our student population in the Cree immersion program. And since then, we've been slowly noticing a decline in our student population in the immersion program. So we are at 32% um, of student, students in our Cree immersion program. So that's, that's concerning for us. Uh, the other thing that happened in the, you know, about six, seven years ago was we also created a Cree language policy and this is important for our, our three program areas, for our OCN history program, our land-based education program, and our pre-immersion program. Um, in order for a student to graduate from our high school, they need to have a Cree credit, 
a Cree language credit, and they need to have an OCN credit. So those are really important to the work that we're doing in, um, in these program areas. Um, and the staff and the administrators can, um, I'm just trying to give a high level picture of what we have been doing over the years. So if the staff want to add anything, they can. Um, and in the last few years also, we've had elders come into the classroom and help in the classroom in a, on a daily basis. And um, we were, with the elders' help, we were able to create uh, our own Cree language dictionary. Uh, that happened in 2016. And there I want to acknowledge um, Fisher River Nation for sharing their dictionary with us and we use that as a guide as we developed ours. Um, the other thing that we, we took the lead role in in education was developing a Cree language declaration for our community. So we had, the, we, we did that work in um, the 2015 and we got it approved by our leadership in January, 2016. So that was, um, that's a, a, a large, you know, that's a, a big achievement for our community in to get that support from the, from our leadership so that we're not the only ones um, doing the work to revitalize the language. And um, in recent years, we've been working on developing our own Cree curriculum. And so we have, um, we have it in, we have a document now, we have a framework document where we focus on our OCN history, our land-based education program and our Cree language immersion program. So, and again, you know what, this work that we do, we do it with our teachers, our administrators. We take time out on weekends to do a lot of this um, foundational developmental work. So I, I really depend a lot on our staff to help us do this work and get this work done. Another big achievement for us in developing um, our OCN history program, because our OCN history is taught right from kindergarten to grade 12, we actually created uh, our own history book and we published that in 2019. So this document, I don't know if you can see it, um, I did send Virgil a copy of it, but this is a, a key document that is used by our teachers now to teach OCN history. So that took a Took a few years, but you know we have our own our own history book now, and um, you know so it's it 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 doesn't this work does not come easily, you know, and I need to put that out there. We've had our share of challenges in going down the path we have. It's um, but our we always say we got to move forward. We got to keep going forward, and that's that's. Basically, you know, in a nutshell, how we've um, come down this this journey with our, our program. Thank you so much for sharing. There's some really exciting things happening. And thank you for holding up the book, too. I think that's so inspiring to see it all kind of come together in, in something that you can show on the camera, right? Um, I wonder, Davin, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about some of the goals and initiatives 
from the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Center perspective. Sure, but before I get into that, I just wanted to say, you know, the work that OCN has done is a great example of, of perseverance, you know, in, in light of all of the systems that still continue to work against uh, our communities and our languages. So I think it's important. I wanted to make that comment because, you know, the stuff that uh, Bev had talked about just now are, are leaps and bounds ahead of many communities in, in what they have. And I think they bring forward some, you know, some uh, processes that a lot of communities would like to uh, get to with their history and with their work in, in immersion programming and that. So in regards to the MFNERC, so MFNERC has been in existence now for over 20 years. And the primary focus for MFNERC was always to provide second level services to First Nations member communities. And in that time, um, proposals were written to access funding on behalf of the First Nations to implement different types of programs the problem that has always been in place is that the government held the purse strings and they're the ones that made the decisions on yes or no, whether or not specific activities were going to be allowed or not. And these were decisions that were made by non-First Nations, non-educators, judging educational um, processes and programs and things like that. So one of the biggest things that has always been blocked is curriculum. Anytime the word curriculum was written in a proposal, it would get a strike through in all the proposals. So for many, many years, uh, many First Nations, including OCN, had requested uh, uh, curriculum resources, um, resources for teaching of the language and things like that. And it was always difficult to justify allocating time and resources to that when they weren't allowed in the proposals. Now that some of that funding has changed in the way that the funding is provided, uh, MFNERC has been going through a transition process. And with that transition process, uh, we've come up with a, a new plan and a new approach to providing services. Now that there's a little lessening of, of the restrictions uh, that have been previously in, the pla in place for uh, second level service organizations, uh, we're able to do some different planning. Um, one of the things that we're doing is changing the whole structure within languages and cultures and making that department, uh, amalgamating that department with a few areas. And I was brought on to oversee that process. And that process involves four pillars, what we're calling four pillars for the organization in focusing on languages and cultures. And those four pillars are instructional resource development, capacity building, in-school supports, and community-based planning. So each of those have different activities within them that uh, we'll be working with communities uh, more focused. Uh, and, you know, for example, in instructional resource development, part of the activities in there will be developing classroom resources for teaching languages which is something that, uh, you know, has, we've seen very little of, uh, but now that there's some lightening of re restrictions, we're gonna be moving forward with that. Uh, setting some and language, uh, language vetting and uh, standards for language learning. Uh, we're gonna look at 
collaborative processes for developing materials with communities. So it goes along the line with uh, capacity building. We want to work with communities to be able to have their own capacity, to have their own people who will be able to um, build resources and in, in a sense duplicate some of the processes that OCN has already uh, been through. And, you know, I know there are examples and OCN is a prime example of how some, you know, some of those processes can be successful and can come to fruition with, with hard work and, and perseverance. So, so in, in a nutshell, our, our focus of the organization is, is going to be now focusing on languages and cultures. So we, we provide services to uh, communities and schools in all of the five uh, First Nation languages in Manitoba. So it's, uh, it's, it's gonna be exciting. Um, the only thing kind of slowing things right now is, is the pandemic, but once the pandemic uh, lets up a bit, then we will really start to move forward. Thank you. It sounds like there's some really um, positive directions and um, that's, that's exciting to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I think this might be a good place to ask Berju if she could share a little bit about the community-based research project that she's collaboratively engaged in. Thank you. So uh, my name is Burjiaman Neteleoğlu. I'll just um, wanted to say that um, I would like to really acknowledge also the fact that, you know, I live and work in Treaty 2 land and as a non-Indigenous scholar having the really privilege to be able to work with the amazing group of First Nations educators that you're meeting here um, has been a true privilege for me. So I wanted to thank them and always learning and being inspired and the work about the work that we do together and yeah so I think this work continues and I'm so happy that um, both Michelle and Jackie um, you've invited us and created this platform and uh, for us to be able to share this work and I hope that this will be ongoing work so um, as Bev explained I think um, the initiatives are really inspiring and yet this doesn't mean that there aren't challenges. And I wanted to begin a little bit by, I know that so many of us in this group are really aware of some of the urgencies and challenges with respect to indigenous language revitalization, which because this is a podcast that would be shared and recorded with a larger audience. Um, I just wanted to share very briefly and talk about this urgency. Um, UNESCO shared that of the 7,000 existing languages across the world, 5,000 are spoken by different indigenous cultures. And currently 2,680 of these indigenous languages are disappearing at an alarming rate as the communities speaking them are confronted with assimilation and forced relocation, educational disadvantage, um, poverty, illiteracy, and other forms of discrimination and human rights violations. So this really points to the urgency both locally as well as globally. And we know that with respect to the recent literature on indigenous languages around the world, um, there's that urgent need 
And um, this is also stressed with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. And McCartney and Nicholas explain that for indigenous communities, their language is essential to cultural continuity and community sustainability. And I think that's important. Yes, you know, our goal, as many of us will speak passionately, is really to try to think about how might we make this process easier for indigenous communities to reclaim and revitalize um, the many languages and the many dialects of those languages. I, and I think that it's also important to recognize the role of schools in doing that. And schools historically have been places where the languages have been erased, right? How can we change that? And, and I think in our collaborations and conversations, I think it's really important to think about those social and political implications of and, and identity connections uh, to this important work. So I just wanted to begin by that. And, and I think that now that like maybe 10 years ago, when this project maybe started or was in earlier years, there was less examples in terms of literature on how this was done, but more and more, I think uh, there are researchers who are really looking at that and trying to understand how can we do that collaboratively because this is really challenging work. And so, um, so let's talk about the research project. Um, so the cl this collaborative relationship between um, OCN and Brandon University dates back to, uh, you know, as researchers, we do look at the history and Bev showed you the wonderful book that showcases that powerful history uh, that dates back to 1992, right? And this community-based project is, is really also a kind of model the, all of the data is owned by the community. The research questions are always coming from the needs of or the goals, the questions of the educators, community members, elders. And um, I think that very quickly in the study, one of the things that uh, the community recognized that, you know, yes, there were surveys that were conducted to try to look at the experiences of the teachers and students in both the Cree immersion program and the English program to understand, you know, how are their experiences? You know, what are things that are going well? What are things that need to be studied or, you know, what challenges emerge? And I think um, there were many learning lessons throughout and I think it's good to, to um, and I th I'm sure that the educators will point to some of these challenges. Like one of the things that uh, Bev mentioned, um, which is huge, was looking at a BA, BA degree, right? And that really, you know, the, the ideas for that also was reinforced by uh, what, what was noticed in the data that we were looking at. Um, teachers were saying that it's, we were, uh, educators were finding it difficult, schools were finding it difficult to find trained, 
three speakers who are educated with pedagogy and education. And it's wonderful that the OCN community took that on and said, okay, if it's really hard to find these educators who are trained, why don't we create that program? So I think that um, that's why it's so exciting to share some of those initiatives and there's so much to share. But I think looking at it from a, uh, from a research perspective, and maybe in this audience, there are some grad students or other researchers who are trying to look at either into either indigenous language revitalization or um, indigenous uh, paradigms of approaching research and decolonizing research. I think that um, making those connections will be important, right? So OEA owns all data, information, and findings with respect to this research. And um, there is collaboration that takes place from the initial stages of formulating the research question, collecting the data, going to the data, and thinking about the data, like Bev, Karen, and the educators. Uh, We've been meeting regularly to, to look at the data and saying, okay, this is what we're noticing. Um, we're, for example, one of the things that we were noticing was in the pre-immersion program, um, less students were being sent to the principal's office, right? And we wanted to understand the reasons why, like why was this taking place? And we know that in our English program too, that there are valuable cultural teachings that are being uh, integrated is language could language be the factor and you know to make judgments and to make decisions about what we're seeing um, and how we're seeing them it's important so I'll end with um, like Sean Wilson uh, is an is a is a brilliant scholar who is also from the OCN community and he says that research is all about unanswered questions, but it also reveals our unquestioned answers. So together, we're yes, we're looking for those research questions, but we're also looking at our own interpretations and trying to critically analyze, you know, why we're immediately giving those answers. So it's a process of learning for all of us. And I'm truly humbled to being a part of this. Thank you so much. I'll end much. it here for the moment, yes. <laughs> Thank you. We can just all see the excitement radiating from your face. I can tell this is something you're very passionate about and it's wonderful to hear. And I loved how you framed the, the broader conversation at the beginning. Thank you for sharing that with us. I wonder, Karen, if you'd be able to describe some of your Cree immersion program for us. As Bev mentioned, the pilot project started in 2006 with kindergarten students. Um, our pre-immersion program is uh, taught kindergarten to grade three, 100% at the time, and grades four to grade six, uh, 20, uh, 80%. To the, today, um, with uh, community uh, concerns, while the teachers are teaching half hour Cree to kindergarten, I mean, half hour of English to kindergarten and grade to grade three, and an hour of English to grades four to grade six, and the rest of the time is um, Cree. 
the now one of the challenges that we have is trying to get uh, parents to understand that tree is very important to our community and that we are losing it. And the concerns were the declining enrollment of our uh, Cree immersion program. All the instruction that the Cree ha has been going on is developed by the teachers. So as they are teaching, they are also developing the material because we do not have um, materials at hand. One of the good things that are really happening is that when we do develop the materials, we can start putting them into posters, thanks to Oscar Lathlet's Collegian's uh, machinery and their technology that's happening over there. So we've got posters going also. The other thing too is that I'd like to really commend the teachers coming in together to develop the programs and um, uh, develop the resources to continue on with the instruction in the classrooms. The other thing is elder involvement. We get the elders involved, but not as, as not since COVID. The elders haven't been in, but every since before that, they are coming in on a, on a continuous basis into the classrooms. We've also included the the English classrooms with elder involvement. And the English, the Cree is also instructed for a half an hour as a subject area to the English classrooms. The other thing too is technology. Uh, the, Cree, the Cree have traveling laptops where they can access uh, apps so they can, the students can practice Cree on, on, the, on the app with the laptops. The, um, the teachers came together and created benchmarks for each grade level, but they're general benchmarks. One of the things that I was really concerned about was the assessment, as Mer uh, Berger was uh, mentioning, that um, assessment is really part of how we assess our students with, with Cree. In the Western, in the Western uh, uh, de delivery of uh, instruction, we, we tend to look at our students like uh, the Western, like we teach them the Western style rather than using the Cree, the Cree style. That's one of the, that's one of the things that we got out of the, 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 the research that we're, we're developing as I was going with um, the data for the school-wide school -wide, um, assessments. Um, other than that, everything else is going really well in terms of uh, continuous development of our Cree Immersion Program. We'll have, uh, we'll have um, Barb talk about the unit planning. Michelle, may I quickly comment on what Karen said about assessment, because I think it's such an exciting topic, and this is so important, yes, for, um, for the Cree Immersion Program itself and for uh, Indigenous communities. I find that some of these insights that in, uh, these educators are finding out as we look at the process is also really enlightening with respect to K-12 
assessment in general in to both the Western world as well as indigenous communities uh, who are really working very hard to, to understand how we might change the curriculum, how we might change instruction and assessment. Like, um, I think that one of the strengths of indigenous uh, ways of being and how it's teaching us um, with respect to pedagogy and curriculum is that, that ontological, like paying attention to the relationships, right? When we're doing our assessment, you know, are, are we using, and uh, you know, from an academic perspective, I think when I say paying attention to relational ontologies, the academics who are listening will, um, will um, have a sense of what I'm talking about. But I think when we pay attention to emplacing assessment um, through a relational ontology that indigenous ways of being and knowing teaches us, it really shapes what we think of assessment and the practices of assessment, right? It's no longer a mark on on a page, but it's beyond that. How do we build that relationship? What does it really truly mean to use and communicate through that language? And what are the different accountability practices that shows us multiple evidences of learning uh, in these communities? So I'll end it here, but yeah, that's why I said it's always a learning, um, journey for all of us and there are lots of strong implications to um to all schools not just schools in uh, indigenous communities do you find that as the language becomes the the vehicle for the education and as these practices are changing do you find that it happens simultaneously like you start rethinking assessment because you're thinking through a different language? Does it happen yeah. like that? I, I think I'll let the educators really comment about that. But I think like in, in our conversations, in our interviews um, with teachers, students and parents, I think for example, land-based approaches to learning about language. Yes, you're learning the terminologies, the language, but you're also learning a way of being. And in that way of being, what are the respectful instructional and assessment practices, right? And that does justice to that holistic experience. So definitely, but I'll, I'll let educators um, join to this conversation. They have so much to share. So I'll stop here and um, yeah. All right, educators, let's hear from you. Okay. Um, we brainstorm our unit plans together uh, after school working hours in, group, in grade groups. Uh, we work together as a group to put the learning outcomes and content after school. The year plan was made for the grade three for the curriculum framework. I made my own unit plans to match the units of the curriculum framework for grade three. I plan the learning strategies and differentiated instructions for grade three. The unit plans were planned and integrated into subjects with the theme that goes with it. And um, this is actually the curriculum framework and all the subjects were covered, math, science, social studies, everything worked all together as a theme and a unit. 
So that's what we did. These are the, the things that I planned for grade three for each month. I just want to share for people who couldn't see on the screen, it looks like a circular framework instead of the sort of Western linear model. First we do this and then we do this, right? So I wonder, uh, other teachers are welcome to chime in or um, Berju or Davin or Karen, any of you might want to talk about some of your efforts with the curriculum creation or creating your own curriculum. I'll get Linda yeah. to talk about the lesson plans, the, her instruction or pre-instruction. I followed the same template as Barb did. I was part of the curriculum framework that we did another. But with my pre-program, I do a lot of visuals. I develop a lot of resources in the classroom that I use because I find that with the little kids, they catch on a lot faster when they're looking at visuals and we do the oral lessons and that. Uh, I utilize the elders when they're in the school and that for storytelling and giving history on that, on the OCN and that. Uh, I do have that, that uh, OCN history framework. So we do that and uh, I develop a lot of my own resources and that to help with students and that. So it's a, it's a learning experience and that. And I find that too when I'm teaching my kids when I'm doing a half hour uh, English program, I read the books or something in English, but I also reframe to the Cree program. So oh, while sure. they're doing that reading at the same time in English, they're doing it in Cree. So they're learning both languages. And when I send resources home for the parents to help the students learn the, the program, I put the words in English and that so the, the parents will also know what they're teaching their kids and they're finding that they're also learning the program that way. Priscilla's still there? Yeah, she's still here. Hey, yeah. Priscilla, go ahead. Hi, my name's Priscilla and um, I'll actually do, I'll actually see if I can find a shared screen so you can, you'll have an idea of what we're looking at. Now you can see it? Okay. <laughs> okay, this is the one Barb was talking about here. And this is the unit plan that we had developed. So this is a this is a winter one. So here's this is grade two, by the way. So we kind of use both uh Western Western worldview and indigenous worldviews. So we have all our uh, our communication, our writing, our, our vocabularies on there monthly. We, we've made it into monthly units. As you can see, we have, we, I have two comprehension on reading. Those are uh, uh, books, mini unit books that I have done. And then on the bottom one, how thunder and earthquake made ocean. So that comes from another book, from, uh, a book that we had got from Saskatchewan. And thanks to them, we've used a lot of, a lot of the resources as a guide to develop our resources too. And <clears throat> this is some of the stuff that we have been doing. We do music songs that we, we have to translate songs and create on a steady basis. We try and do readers theater. And now with help, we try and do, um, we integrated uh, TP teaching, seven teachings with uh, PATS. I don't know if you know that program PATS, but we also, follow that in social studies, we have these global connections where we actually integrate both uh, both lo local connections and also into the outside, outside world beyond, beyond uh, to, to the other side there, towards Europe and all that stuff. So 
So we, we do have a lot of visuals and audios that we've been doing. And the way that students learn quickly too is through song. We use a lot of TPR. And being, I am, flu, I am fluent speaker in American Sign Language. So that helps too because we use a lot of movement when we, when we introduce new outcomes to the students and reading and writing, introducing new animals and colors and using sign language in the class also in NTPR, the kids catch on quickly onto their lessons. And after a while, you, won't, you don't even have to say the words with the kids when, as soon as you start using your hands, using sign language or TPR, the kids catch on and they understand the expectations that they have. Now, what we have been doing too is, we're in the middle of um, making uh, sight words. So what we have been doing, we've between the, from kindergarten to grade six, we've been asking each other, how many words, words should they know by the end of kindergarten, grade one and so on. So we've actually been collaborating and, and where we left off, where, where each person, person should be teaching to a certain level. But it's the, <clears throat> So we're always, we're, we're steady creating, adapting, changing weekly, communicating on a daily basis for our, for our kids to, to, um, to progress, understand, and have a sense of belonging when they come into the school that, that, um, that speaking the language, it, it does give you that sense of belonging. You have that in, because when we talk Cree to them, I find that the kids were going back into indigeneity and the kids have that excitement when they learn new words and they're excited to use them at home. Thank you. Did anyone else want to talk about their efforts with curriculum creation or creating their own curriculum? I know. Gavin, you do some work too, but anyone else, feel free. I'll get Sylvia to talk about the importance of connecting with the land. Okay. We do land-based programming with all our children, with all the students. Okay, Sylvia? Yeah. With um, connecting with the land, when we first started um, taking the students out on the land and we utilized our elders, it was um, very effective as using the elders as teachers, it, it reinforced what they learned in the classroom and taking it out into the land to make it more meaningful for them. And um, I'm, like I mentioned, we're at camp right now and it's different because we don't have our elders in the camp and we can sense that it's missing. It's, uh, it's, diff it's a different feeling, but we do what we can in, um, getting the students to be connected with, their, with, with the land. And my personal views on this, um, you have a connection with nature. For myself personally, I find peace within myself when I'm out on the land. And um, knowing that our ancestors were there before us. And for me, that's my connection. They walked and lived, lived off the land. It's a part of our being and it makes languages that more important to know that your identity as an Aboriginal. Um, with that, um, I'd just like to um, comment on, um, I was evaluating um, teachers the past two weeks and um, 
Linda Constant did a very, very good presentation with her um, students in the nursery program. I was just marveled by the amount and the effort that she put into with the teaching, with the lessons. She had a model there and she was really persistent with the Cree, speaking in Cree. Uh, Her um, use of English was minimal and I was very impressed with that. Um, I told Linda you did such an awesome job. Yeah. Oh yes, I wanted to mention too that um, when Bev was talking that um, one of our ways of promoting our language too was we did a, a Cree language app with the elders. And I had the honor of um, sitting and working with the elders and developing that, that Cree language app for use uh, all, over the, all over the place. That's fantastic. I get, I get really excited hearing all of these things that are happening. I don't always know all of this. And so this is, uh, I'm so grateful to be part of this, even mm-hmm. though I'm, I'm learning, I think, more than I'm able to say. But thank you for sharing. Um, I, I want to move maybe to some of the challenges. Michelle, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, before we move on, I think, um, Marcella, you Marcella. were going to say a couple of oh, words okay. about the high school portion. Lots to share. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Okay. Go ahead, Marcella. Okay, we've um, developed a curriculum from seven all the way up to 12. And now we have the two Cree teachers, you know, grade seven and eight does one and then the other one does the rest. But it's something that's been in the works for several years. Plus it follows a model where outdoor ed and land-based education all fall into the one model. They follow the one model and it follows the cultural and the traditional practices and the different um, ceremonies and ceremonial followings. Yeah, the different teachings. Marcella, would it be possible to elaborate a little bit about like the the uh, Cree language framework that you have and then the connections that you have? I know you're talking about land-based and, you know, yeah. all our relations and all of the teachers point the to that. Point to and, that. Yeah. Sylvia point to that. Can you elaborate on those? Because I think that might be something interesting to uh, some of our uh, non Indigenous educators uh, who might be listening as well. The Cree, the curriculum is based on the seven kingdoms, the two-legged, the creator, you know, and it goes on up to. So each outcome then is matched up with which kingdom, and that decides when the outcome is taught what season it's taught, uh, how long it's taught for. And there's the two-legged, the four-legged, and how everything connects, uh, how the different kingdoms connect with the, the different outcomes that we have. Could I ask how long the high school program has been going? Like, have you seen the students that started learning Cree even in nursery? Have they moved? 
have they moved up into your program yet or there's... yeah they've already grad some of them have already graduated wow that's amazing yeah, yeah. thank you and there's uh, they're introducing syllabics now and we're getting uh, sets of syllabics syllabic fonts made wow. i don't i want to make sure i didn't jump ahead of anyone else who wanted to talk was there anyone else who wanted to talk about curriculum development or any of the kind of classroom practices before we jump into sort of barriers and what we might see as ways to overcome those barriers? Well, you know, if I may, I wanted to add, you know, OCN is, is uh, an example of exemplary work in, in the work that they've done, you know, and one of the things that I wanted to point at point out was that they've done it and then you hear from the extra time after school on the weekends that they've been working on this and it just shows the commitment that they've had from their their, their people that work with them because you know I know for a fact that uh, First Nations have never been afforded any funding to support curriculum development and you know seeing that OCN has been able to do what they have is, is a great accomplishment and, uh, you know, when we even look at some of the things that have been happening recently, even with the new Indigenous Languages Act, even though it, it, it recognizes Indigenous languages, it still doesn't recognize Indigenous languages in the same way that uh, French and English are recognized and the supports that they're entitled to receive. You know, I, I, I would be, uh, I can't even imagine what OCN would be able to do if they were afforded the same luxuries of French and English in ensuring uh, that funds are available to do everything that they need to do to ensure the language is preserved. And that goes for any First Nation. But uh, you know, with OCN, they've, they've laid the groundwork for uh, a lot of the processes. And with, uh, you know, like I said, I can't even imagine the work that they would do and it goes back to even some of the other documents that are still not being um, implemented as they should, even the, the TRC calls to action. You know, there, there's recommendations in there about funding for curriculum and, and uh, languages, and that's not being followed, that's not being supported. There's also UNDRIP, which finally Canada signed on to. They weren't signatory to the first round, but they finally signed on. And there's lots in there that they're not recognizing or following through yet. So there, there's lots of, uh, there, there's still lots of hurdles for First Nations. And like I said, OCN is uh, an example of, of resilience and, and perseverance in, in the development that they've done. And, and, you know, unfortunately, I wish that all of our communities, First Nations communities would be at the same place that they're at. But unfortunately, they're not. There's some that have not even started uh, their journey, and and some can't. I, I worked in a couple of communities where language loss is so um, so profound that there's there's literally a handful of speakers left, and they're not able to work in a school because they're they're elderly. I know of one community, one First Nation community in Manitoba. They've they've experienced complete language loss. So they kind of have a unique Ojibwe dialect and it's gone. They, they won't bring it back. So now they're utilizing Ojibwe speakers from other communities to revitalize the language. So, you know, it, 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 you are right that 
we're in a crisis mode when it comes to languages for some of our communities. <clears throat> Even for us as an organization that uh, works with the seven, uh, five language groups, we have a very difficult time finding langu language speakers in some of the groups. Uh, Dakota is, is one area we have a very hard time finding uh, people who are able to work and, and help translate and do that kind of work in, in, the, in, the, in their language. So yeah, so it's, it's, I'm glad they brought up land base because that connection to the land is very important. And I think that's part of the key. And I believe it was Karen had talked about that balance of Western, uh, Western education. And, you know, one of the things that <clears throat> I always run into in, in some of the research that I've done and, and work is how our own people don't validate the knowledge of our, our knowledge keepers and of our elders. They always seem to want a westernized uh, university or organization to, to acknowledge their, their, to recognize their knowledge before it's accepted. So we have some barriers, but I know we'll get into talking about some of the challenges as well shortly. I think, I think we're already talking about that. So let's just open that up to anyone who, who wants to share about challenges with respect to Indigenous language revitalization. I'll share what I have. Oh, okay. Um, one of them is parental engagement. We found over the years that it's difficult to get the parents immersed in our programs. And um, I know OES have tried many ways of getting the parents to participate. We do get a handful, but you know, we want more, more of our community members to want to learn the language. And also the, the number of people that speak the language. And Devin just mentioned that they're not qualified because they don't have the degree. And I know we could utilize them. They're rich in our language. But again, it all goes back to the qualifications. And also, <clears throat> I'm finding that um, teachers that don't put forth the effort in teaching the, uh, I'd say 100%, 125%, try and get them to be motivated to continue because we don't have very many speakers that are teachers. Like we have Barb Eman, she's gonna be retiring and we're gonna have to replace her. And that's gonna be difficult. I'm finding that the positions that we do fill they, they understand the language, but a lot of them are not fluent speakers. And um, it's, it's, it, it's sad to see that. Um, the passion starts to wear off and um, the language needs to be taught in the classroom and we can't lose sight of that. Those are the notes that I have put forth when I was thinking about this, the challenges. Thank you. Uh, for challenges, I had mentioned uh, the decrease in enrollment in our immersion program, and that, in my um, in my opinion, goes to the resistance from our community members who are unaware of the benefits of having more than one language, and that's what we've tried to put focus on in the last few years is. 
um, promoting the benefits of two languages for their children. Um, and it goes back to, you know, our, our, our community members being colonized to believe, you know, or to think that um, English is the only language that's, that our um, students need to succeed. Um, so to me, that's like a major, um, a major challenge that we need to um, try and overcome. The other um, challenge that I wanted to put out there, and Sylvia mentioned it as well, is finding fluent teachers. Um, Virgil did mention that um, from the research project that we were engaged with, that um, to teacher mobility was an issue in our immersion program. And um, so we did engage with Browning University um, into a partnership where we began our own BA, BA program. And um, those students that are in that program are now in year four. And some of them are going to be pre-immersion teachers. So it's just, um, that's the whole, I think, you know, one of our challenges is that we need to be able to keep um, educating uh, the community members to, to be teachers, those that are fluent. It's really important that we have that continuity to keep the program going. Mm -hmm. So those are um, two concerning areas for me. You know, I, I just want to, you know, spin off of what Bev is saying and that, uh, you know, I was going to mention that funding is definitely an issue. I, I think Bev, Bev can, you know, agree to that, that if we had more funding or if our language uh, development processes were funded properly, that uh, we'd see a lot more development mm -hmm. and a lot more uh, resources for, for children and adults. Part of the issue is we have adults who are non-speakers and um, there's no place to get that language learning for them, especially some of the young parents whose children are learning and are not able to reinforce it at home. So that's a tough one. And, and we're not given any funds to support any kind of language, adult language learning at this time. Uh, there is the Indigenous Languages Act funding. It's very limited. It's very difficult to access and, um, you know, makes it, makes it hard to, uh, to do anything with. We recently, they did a call for proposals. Uh, we submitted one and we got a response stating that it would be 30 weeks before we'd hear anything back. 30 weeks. Yeah. A project that's supposed to start in a couple of weeks. So, but that, you know, a bit deeper than that though, and Bev touched on that. And I, I think where we still struggle is with, with the historical trauma that is directly related to number one, settler colonial views, uh, settler colonialism, which is still alive and well uh, in, in systems that are in place. Uh, that whole thought of uh, settler, settler notions is still present even in our court systems and our education, the Western education system. And it's deeply entrenched and it's hard for people to understand that. Um, that there needs to be a different way. And I think it was, might've been Sylvia or, or Karen who had talked about how we need to change our thought process back to the indigenous way of thinking, connecting to the land and all those types of great things that you know they, I know they see happening and, and in the children, children are happier. 
definitely. But also a lot of that, uh, a lot of that dissension, even, you know, I've even seen examples of where our, our own people speak against the language. You know, you're wasting your time. Our kids don't need that. Very negative comments, you know, comments that I, I wouldn't want to share in an open forum like this that speak against our, our, our people. And, you know, that leads right back to the residential schools. And I, and I can't stress how harmful, how much hurt, uh, how much of a negative effect the residential schools had on our people. A lot of these residual, residual effects uh, from the residential schools are so entrenched in our people that you know they're they're almost blind to it, and and it, it it hurts. It hurts once you you come to the realization you can recognize and see it, and see the lateral violence that stems from that, and it, and it's, it's it's awful, and you know. But when we think about it, you know the whole process settler colonialism residential schools was designed to get rid of uh, First Nations First Nation status. First Nation languages, but you can see by the people that are in here today and the work they're doing that they weren't successful and they're not going to be successful. So we're, we're resilient people in how uh, we've been able to persevere and our languages are still here. We haven't lost them. And our, and our elders always say that languages are within. It's just a matter of bringing them out. You never lose them. You'll, you'll even hear some of our elders talk about blood memory that it's in our blood so you can't be you can't lose it you can forget it but we can bring it out so and again we still have government policies government policies that are dictating how we do things when we do things uh even as recently as last week with bill bill uh, 64 with the education act i question how much uh first nations uh consultation was involved in the development of that it's going to have very deep impacts into First Nations education, even though our First Nations communities are federal responsibility, but the federal government says, we don't have an act. So you follow the provincial act. If you don't, we won't give you funding. So they still hold that over us. And even on top of that was Bill 47, which is the uh, Early Childhood Act that was released. That affects our efforts with early childhood education, daycare head start programming as well. So there was a new act there that I, I haven't even had a chance to review myself. So yeah, it, it's very important. There's lots of challenges um, and, and it comes right from highest levels of government, right down, right to our own people in, in, that are creating barriers. But I, I think as long as we continue to have people, especially, you know, OCN has, is a prime example of those kind of people that we need to ensure that languages, you know, thrive and, and survive, you know, we'll keep going. And I know they're going to keep going. So, yeah, so I thought I would share that. I think uh, just one more comment from me. Um, you know, to go down the path of uh, immersion programming is, is a daunting task. And I know um, even, you know, when we went down this path, it was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was difficult, you know, going down a new path that it's, it was, um, you know, we don't know whether you're going to succeed or fail and you don't want to fail, right? And, but I, and um, so as much as possible, we do try and help um, 
provide that assistance to nations, other nations that ask for for documents and you know how we went forward. We're, we're very open about that. And um, but um, I think once you can start into a program, it just it just kind of takes off from there. So I just wanted to share that too. I just wanted to point to like I think there are so many important. Uh, being raised and parental engagement is one issue that came up for sure in all of the data, data with the student interviews and, um, and student survey, you know, when we ask questions such as who helps you with your homework, right? It wasn't usually parents, sometimes it was grandparents who spoke the language fluently, but definitely that need for uh, parental engagement, not only be engaged in school and um, come to the parent-teacher interviews maybe, but also for the parents to be interested and like Devon said, to really believe that that language learning is not, does not come at the detriment of learning English, right? That in fact, when we look at research, we uh, in applied linguistics, we see that when indigenous languages are learned along with the English, it actually supports both of those languages. And, um, you know, that's there in bilingual education research, but when it comes, like Devon expressed, when, it, uh, when it's uh, shared sometimes with respect to indigenous languages or Cree immersion program, as opposed to some a practice like French immersion that has been going on for years, it's never questioned with French immersion programs as much, but it becomes a big question, you know, when it's, um, in efforts to indigenize a language. So this, um, I think that that uh, colonial thinking and sometimes uh, some of the oppressive practices still continue and linger to this point. And as that one said, we need to actively try to respond to it. Um, one, uh, one other tension that I wanted to bring um, that came up from research, which was really important, and it is a controversial topic, but I think we, we have to take up all of these different tensions. Um, one of these was um, with respect to purism and like purism in terms of you know, what is the standard language? What is the standard dialect? Because, you know, when we talk about a community, for example, such as OCN, it doesn't mean that there's always one, only one dialect that is in place, even in schools, like teachers said, if um, there were sometimes higher from hires um, who are teaching in, in pre-immersion schools, let's say, um, that there were tensions with respect to which form is the purest form, right? And dialect differences were a topic that emerged from those teacher responses. And um, like also uh, respondents reported that there was still sometimes disagreements on whether to use, for example, OCN Cree or standard Roman orthography, um, you know, SRO, SRO uses the letters of the English alphabet to represent the Cree language sounds, and it's the most widely used for teaching purposes. Um, it, in Western Canada, but as a result of these different opinions, the teacher indicated that some students and community members are becoming frustrated 
um, at the inconsistencies in the language and tensions arise. So we don't want we don't want people to think that like there are those struggles too, right? When we think about the Cree language, thinking about the diversities of it, and and from again from applied language um, like indigenous language uh, revitalization efforts. We do, um, we do see in the literature and the results of different research projects that whenever communities try to embrace, uh, embrace the multiplicities of dialects that are available, along with the multiplicities of indigenous languages in those communities, and they're trying to integrate into the curriculum, um, there's more openness and uh, within the school. So, so there are tensions, obviously, but um, and language revitalization is a collaborative process like Bev, Devon and uh, all the educators mentioned. It's a long journey with many challenges that require significant investment of time and human and material resources. Um, but OCN is a really wonderful example that shows us that it can be done. And um, yeah. Thank you. I think that's really beautiful. And we can hold that up as an example. You have this language declaration for your community and a dictionary and a history book and you have elders coming in. You have so many wonderful things happening and that's great to share. Um, I wonder, we've, we've identified challenges. I wonder if uh, maybe this is just my curiosity, but I would love to hear a little bit about your thoughts moving forward, either ways to address those challenges or your imagination of where you want to go in the future. One of the things that we're, one of the initiatives we're working on is actually um, building uh, our own Cree immersion school. And um, so that's a project that's, that's in the works. I'm not sure how long it's going to take us, but um, you know, I, I hear from the educators that our students need to hear the language at recess, at lunchtime, and right throughout the day, and everyone needs to be using that language consistently. So um, from, our, from our perspective and what we can do in the school is to create a setting where that can happen. So that's one of the, um, the projects we're working on for the future so that we can continue to um, produce speakers and, and to keep the language alive in the community as a whole. I was um, thinking about uh, having a central area, a building where only Cree language is spoken and what Bev had mentioned and um, I know this has come out in our, in our community meetings as well, to have a central building where all these activities could take place and our Cree language can be used as a teaching tool for our community members. But also um, having elders as teachers and um, going out to the camps and for longer periods of time, that's something that, that I envision could happen for young young people, not just a few days, but to be there and immerse with the culture, the teachings of living off the land and learning from our elders. 
those were the two that um, I had thought about quite a bit. Oh, I'd have to agree with both of them that it, it, I think the future for uh, languages and cultures is on the land and having that as a primary setting for education, I think is going to be key um, in, in our students understanding their connection to the land as well as connection to um, each other. Uh, kinship is really important and that relationship to the land is important. And I think that's something that is, is still needs a lot of work. Um, but again, we have to get that going soon because our, our knowledge keepers that possess that knowledge are, are leaving us uh, at, at an alarming rate. So we have to get that get, get that knowledge from them and pass it on to uh, people who will carry that forward. Uh, just for sharing purposes to, um, I just wanted to share that when I um, meet up with somebody that speaks Cree, I can feel it in my body, my being. After I have the conversation and it's in Cree and I say, that felt so good to speak with somebody in the same language. And it seems like it, it's getting further away from having that happen. And we need to really continue working hard in making sure that we don't, that our language is not lost. Michelle, could I ask a question? Sure, go ahead. Um, to the OCN folks, do you see any Cree language signs in the community that might help or might inspire people to use the language? We actually do have um, a lot more signage that's in the language. I just finished working with uh, a community um, member too, Beth, one of the, our leaders. We, we did a lot of translation for um, public works with their facilities that, that they're developing. And those are all in Cree. And I worked with an elder to do that. So that was really nice to see. The community as a whole, the other uh, branches within Opasquiac are, are um, starting to do more with um, the language revitalization too. So um, that language declaration and the commitment from leadership, I think is starting to show now in the community. I would just like to thank you so much for coming and sharing with us. It's amazing to hear the things that you're doing. Um, it's frustrating um, to hear that so much of it has had to be such grinding work and that, um, you know, I think we are, we're all aware that it's something that we need to support as a community more um, with funding and with um, different resources. Uh, and I think it's good that we have the time to talk about it and that we get to thinking about it and start moving people forward with that because I think it's important for um, all of Manitoba um, to um, do some of that language revitalization. And I, I really enjoyed hearing what um, is going on at OCN. Uh, it's been several years since I've had a chance to visit your community, but I have lots of uh, rich memories from when I was there, and I'm really glad to see all the work that you've been doing since then. You've done some really exciting things. So thanks for coming to join with us today and to share your experiences. Um, 
I think it has been a valuable conversation.